You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will love rock So I stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, welcome to the GFR show. I have another amazing entrepreneur for you to meet with a transformational story. So here's a question to kick us off. Have you ever tried to let go of something that you really, really wanted, particularly after you didn't get it? Well, our guest today, Jenny Kovacs, is a pro at this. And she's going to share with you why. And I will say that there is a little bit of a trigger warning here that if you are pregnant and have any worries about your pregnancy, probably not a good show for you to listen to right now. Jenny is a visibility specialist known as the queen of being seen. And she is based in the UK and has a really fucking cool accent. (laughs) She talks about how she kind of milks it when she's here in the States, which I think she totally should. She is a speaker, mentor, a coach, a businesswoman, and she is the creator of the visibility activator system, which she goes through briefly, but powerfully for our GFR squad members in our bonus training. So if you have any interest in how to be more visible, and this is not just about social media, y'all, it's actually very little about social media. She talks about that for our GFR squad. And she has been on the BBC, both on the radio and on TV, and she's all kinds of places that she's been seen. Obviously, she's a visibility expert. And what I most enjoyed about her story was that she talks about growing up in the kind of rural parts of England or sort of outside of the city of of, uh, London and how she learned to conform and be normal. And now her whole uh, business and her expertise is about standing out first in her own career. And she tells the story about that. And then for her clients now, both corporate clients, as well as entrepreneurs. So it's just, it was delightful to reconnect with her. Jane and I go back, we met about 2014 when she was a client and I just, she always stood out to me (laughs) as a matter of fact, but I didn't really know her that well. So it was really delightful to get to know um, her as a young Jenny (laughs) and more about this transformational story that she went through and how it really shows up in her life today. She calls it the gift in ugly wrapping. So without further ado, Miss Jenny Kovacs. Jenny Kovacs, what a treat. Hello from across the pond. Hello, hello. And I now feel like I have to speak very clipped, beautiful English now (laughs) just to demonstrate that I'm actually from London. Your your accent is hard to miss, my dear, and quite lovely. Talk about, not that we've started talking, but we have, like, talk about, like, unconscious bias. Accents. Or do you feel like you're, like, benefit from that lovely accent? Oh, my gosh. I milk it. And especially <laughs> all the times when I, when I come to the States, I'm like, I'm sorry, bangs. Oh, you mean fringe. Oh, 
banana you mean oh banana you mean banana (laughs) i (laughs) I would so fucking milk it if i had your accent so i love that you do that that's awesome (laughs) okay so it's the gfr show so we're gonna of course get real and learn all about you and and what's really fun is that we've known each other a long time but i don't really know you that well in your story and so this is going to be fun for me as well. Have you always lived in England? Were you born and raised there? Yeah, I was born and raised in England. My parents were born in Barbados, oh. but they met over here in the UK. So um, it just, I don't know, why would you leave a tropical island and go and live somewhere that's cold and freezing and has snow and rain? Like, why would you do that? But Yeah, they it did doesn't make that. sense to me. <laughs> so they met here and I've always lived here although I've had um you know throughout my career I guess I've had times where I've lived and worked abroad so I've lived in Morocco Turkey France where else Austria for a little while so I've been a bit of a nomad oh wonderful I love that I love that I'm so American <laughs> it's like ridiculous <laughs> I I have traveled I traveled a bunch before I was married and I really fancied myself quite the traveler. And I, before the age of 20, I had been to like 15 countries and I just thought I'm just always going to travel. And I don't know why I'm telling this story, but I'm supposed to tell the story because it popped into my head. I thought I'm always going to travel and whatever money I'm saving is always like for my next trip. So Greg and I met when we were really young. We met when we were 22, six months Mm -hmm. out of college. I had Mm -hmm. no ambition of being married. Like it wasn't on my radar. I wasn't sure I wanted to have kids. Gosh, I could really go into different. My mother set us up on a date, blind date. So all kinds of interesting aspects of the story. But the the poignant moment was when we were moved in together before we got married and we were at a furniture store and we were looking to buy bedroom furniture. And I decided to spend my traveling money on a bedroom set. And I broke down crying in the furniture store. I was so well aware of what like that decision was such a pivotal turning point so I do miss I do miss travel and I would not identify myself as a world traveler you know it's funny to say this I love traveling I love discovering cultures and I think you think about it differently depending on which decade you're in don't you but you can grow out of it And for me, I liked being immersed in, so like Turkey, oh my gosh, I loved Turkey. I fell in love with Turkey so much. I actually went back uh, two years. I worked in in the travel industry at that point. And um, I cried, I sobbed all the way on the coach on the way back to the airport. And I'm taking guests to the airport and I'm just (laughs) like blowing snot bubbles and they're like feeling really sorry for me and and stuff like that. But I love that immersive experience of like the longer periods of time of staying in a country rather than going somewhere for seven days or two weeks and then coming back. Because you get an experience, you get a sense, but it's not the same as really embedding yourself in the culture. Yeah. You know, Zarina. So she, we interviewed her on the show a month or so ago. We'll put a link to her episode in the show notes. And, you know, she is all about the cultural and like the transformational aspect of really being, you know, immersing yourself when you travel. And Mm. uh, so it makes me think of her and, Mm. um, and her work there and her trips that she takes people on. So I, I, yeah, I'm definitely not feeling very worldly these worldly these days when it comes to to travel. So I'll just have to live vicariously through you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll share some stories. Uh, maybe some of them might not might not be appropriate even for an adult audience, but still, no, no, I can't even imagine <laughs> what might be a, not appropriate for the get fucking real show. We're re- now, now. I really want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So speaking of stories, so your parents were born in Barbados, but they met in England. And so you were, you know, born and raised in England. Mm. And so what did your parents do, do for careers or like, what do you feel like was the most influential aspect of your childhood on sort of like who you are today? I feel like my parents, my family, the most normal types of people. So when my mum came over, she was 19. 
and she became a nurse. She trained to be a nurse. And what I think is interesting about that element was a lot of people have assumed over the years that people have come from the Caribbean or from African countries to, you know, settle down in a civilised country and all of that. When in fact, the truth of the matter was there was a big recruitment drive over in the Caribbean. So my mum decided at 19 that she was going to train to be a nurse, even though she tells me later on that she hated the smell of hospitals. It, they made, it made her feel physically sick. But she, you know, but she thought, I'm going to go for this job, go for this new life. So she she came to the UK and she trained to be a nurse and she was a nurse for many years in the, the British NHS system. Whereas my dad, my dad was training to be, in fact, he had trained to be an English teacher. But when he came to the UK and, and applied for the job, it wasn't, oh, well, if you're a teacher, you can continue being a teacher. No, no, no. These are the jobs we have. Is it going to be the British transport system? Is it going to be kind of nursing? And there were like a handful of jobs on offer. So my dad came over and originally and worked for um, London Transport. So a lot of bus conductors, you know, train drivers and, and people like that. And it, it's only kind of as I've got older that I've reflected back on Gosh, they kind of like ended up almost maybe doing something that they quote unquote had to do. Yeah. Change their trajectory. That said, I come from a fairly happy home. There's, there's no drama that I can report and say, oh, but this thing happened and that thing happened. There was me and my, my younger sister, who's only about 16 months younger than me. And if you had her on the show, it would freak you out because we sound identical. Really? And you really look identical strange, as yeah. well? <laughs> we sound identical. So, um, yeah, so we had a fairly normal upbringing, very, I say humble beginnings, you know, we didn't have oodles of money, but we weren't poor living in ditches and eating out of puddles or anything, you know, just a kind of a, just a random kind of like normal lifestyle, really. And where we lived was in the East Anglian countryside in the UK. So it was very green, lots of fields, lots of open space. It wasn't a city, kind of inner city life or anything else like that. And I discovered that soon after I was born, again, because my mum and dad were a young couple, they were given the opportunity to move in the countryside out of London and have a you know better life to bring up a family and things. So they took that opportunity so, yeah, I had a pretty kind of normal, normal upbringing, really. And was there a lot of people of color in the English countryside? No, not really. There was me and my that, sister that, was did one. Did that one. land for you or was it not even a thing? Do you know what? It's, it's so funny. I didn't really notice it. When I went to school, the people that I went to school with were just who I went to school with. I do remember that there was me and my sister. And then there was another black family who had a son and a daughter. You could literally count people on one hand. It was almost like then there was a token Pakistani family and one of the children was the same age as me. And then there was the token Indian family. You know, <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, it was like somebody had written a little soap opera of how to diversify a, a kind of a small town. <laughs> oh, yes. Who else do we need? Have we got any Swedish? You know, and then there was um <laughs> there was a Chinese American guy, actually, I remember, who I'm still Facebook friends with now, That's whose funny. parents worked for the American Air Force. So he lived on the base and came to the school. But weirdly, I guess, I didn't, I didn't think of it as being anything odd or that I was, an, you know, an anomaly, if I can say that word. Um, I didn't really think of it that way. It was just how it was. Of course, then you become more aware, you know, sometimes you might get some name calling and things like that. But to be honest, I thought it was just stupid. And I was like, yeah, you're calling me a blackie. I mean, how observant, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I didn't, I didn't think anything of it, but yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't really many um, people of color around me. Yeah. And it sounds like your parents also normalized the token diversity of the town and it wasn't a big conversation growing up. 
No, it wasn't. I mean, the things that stand out for me being told, my mum was always very like, watch your behaviour, watch how you act, because, you know, if any trouble goes down, people will, you know, be able to remember that it's you. Don't get involved with that. My dad was always very polite and everybody knew him and waved at him and said hello. In a way, I think back to this, like knowing what I know now, and I think it was almost like, the people-pleasing guide to getting along, not getting into trouble. And it's only years, like decades later, I think even how I sound, you know, that's all the internalised, you know, don't don't break any rules, be good and just toe the line and you'll fit in. And But you know what? That served me really well throughout my career, actually. So I guess I learned to um, kind of conform and be be normal and you know not really kind of stand out or do anything that I shouldn't do you know so you learn to conform and be normal yes interesting I learned to fit in when I was maybe born to stand out who knows (laughs) no you were born to stand out that's why I find that really interesting yeah that is very interesting Yeah, Dr. Valerie Shepard, who was two episodes before you, who also is African-American, talks about in the corporate environment and having to break out of that shell of like being nice and say the things. And yeah, and it's something that, you know, the rainbow of, you know, people and their expressions have to contend with of speaking Mm. their truth. And what does that look like? But for sure, you know, when you're a person of color or marginalized in some way, you know, there is like rules to the game. So yeah, it sounds like you're, you're having an awareness around your dad played the game well, you know, and it served you. Yeah. 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 I learned a lot from it. And, you know, in a way, part of that led to my own pinch me moments and my own successes in life, you know. So I guess I'm glad I've learned the lesson. I think sometimes you get to the other side of the, the decades and then you start to think, actually, today I'm not going to be quiet about this. I'm actually going to say something. Thank you yes. very much. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. I'm just connecting within this moment, sort of the privilege that I had younger to be assertive and speak out. I don't definitely didn't realize it at the time that there was some privilege, white privilege to be a bit more rambunctious in what I stood for and to not worry about additional repercussions because of it. And for sure that latitude younger impacted me today. And I feel like, I feel like earlier than for a lot of people, I, said the things and made the changes in my life. And I feel like I'm 50, but I feel like, you know, I'm as outspoken as a 70 year old, you know, about my experiences and like, fuck you all. This is me, you know, kind of thing. So Mm. I'm just kind of landing in a new way in this moment about that. Mm, mm. Yeah. It's, it is so interesting. It really is because I think I learned at a young age, and again, all of this is very reflective now. I learned from a young age what reputational risk really means and really was. And I also learned from a young age when to exercise that right to be rambunctious, as you said, I love that word, (laughs) or when to, I'm going to use the phrase play the game, or, you know, when to just kind of say whatever it it was that I wanted to say. And and the thing about me that I know about myself, I have never, ever been good at watching something play out that is unjust or shouldn't happen and keep quiet about it regardless. What I did learn was how to say it or how to present it in a way that it would be heard, that it would be listened to. And I think that's really what I probably navigated as I, as I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. I could totally, yeah, I could see that. So did you go to secondary school? So, yep, I went to secondary school and then I decided I didn't want to go on and take, uh, over here you have 
A-levels and then you can go on to university. But I, I just knew at school, I didn't feel particularly academic, I have to say. And it's funny because I was listening to uh, Dr. Veronica's interview as well. And oh, such, such a good one. <laughs> she's so cool. I love her. And she's such a brain box as well, isn't she? She's like, she really oh, is. She this. really is. Yeah. And yeah. I was, I was never that child. My sister, very academic, um, didn't even really need to think about it. But for me, I felt like I just wanted to get out into the world and just start earning money and working and just doing stuff. I didn't want the pressure of trying to decide what to study or study. So I make myself sound like a completely like stupid child. I I wasn't necessarily that. I just, I didn't really want to go down the academic route. I didn't want to go and study more. I just wanted to roll my sleeves up, get stuck in and work. And and I, I had different life lessons along the way. So as an example, at school, we were given and this work experience. The school sends you out and you go and work for a week. Here's the first thing. At school, they said, what do you want to do when you grow up? I said, oh, I want to travel the world. I want to speak lots of languages. And the teacher literally said, stop being silly. Be serious. What do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, no, no, I want to travel could I not be like an air hostess or something? That's the only thing I could think of that would allow me to travel because at seven, I had been back to Barbados. I'd been on a plane and that was how I associated travel. But the teacher was not having this. So in the end, the teacher literally said, what do you like doing? And I said, I love cooking. And they said, okay, you could become a chef. <laughs> and that's how, that's how my career was decided for me. So when we had the choice of doing the work experience, there was a really nice hotel, a five-star hotel um, in the town that I lived at. So we thought, well, it would make good sense for you to go and work in that five-star hotel for the week. Now, I was literally 14 because my birthday's in June. I'm kind of like the youngest out of like, or some of the youngest in that, in my school year. I go to the the hotel. I'm 14. On the fifth day, on the Friday, they offer me a job, which looking back was probably totally illegal because I, you know, you have to be 16 and, and yes. Stuff like that. It didn't matter back though in the 80s, did it? Um, so, Less. so <laughs> I get to work at this hotel. Now imagine this: you know, a girl from humble beginnings gets to work in a five star hotel that serves like proper wines with different food at you know new year's eve they had a 14 course dinner 14 courses so even to this day and people think sometimes that i've had a very privileged upbringing because you know i know how to because you're fancy because you're fancy because I'm fancy, I know how to <laughs> cutlery i know what wine goes with what cheeses but all of that was actually learned in the time that I I worked at this hotel so interesting it was like finishing school for me totally (laughs) perfect absolutely perfect that was kind of how my career started off quite simply (laughs) and did you try different like roles in the hotel I mean because that could I mean there's such a diversity of things to be exposed to and I could see that possibly being beneficial yeah there was and again you kind of connect the dots so I started off obviously work experience waitressing was probably the best thing but I learned service impeccable service this was a hotel that had linen tablecloths polished silver posh breakfasts and morning coffees and afternoon teas you know so it just it taught me so much and then I I worked behind the bar which definitely totally illegal because I wasn't even 18 Um, (laughs) and they used to have weddings you know hold wedding receptions there and so you'd get to serve like silver serve so I learned silver service at weddings and things like that but because I loved cooking I eventually was allowed to then go and work in the kitchens and train to be a chef because at this point I decided well I'm going to go to catering college now and learn how to be a chef so I'm actually a qualified chef. I did not know that wow. People don't (laughs) But yeah, I I love cooking. I love eating the food, but I am a qualified chef. Yeah. And did you continue with that for a period of time as that as a career? I did. So I continued with it until the head chef gave me, I think it was three Saturday nights off in a row, by which time I'm like 17 going on 18. 
which is never a great thing to do because when you discover partying and being able to go out and socialise, you don't really want to go back. But yeah, I, I did that. But again, in my head, I remember thinking, this is good. I've worked in this hotel now. I worked in the pastry room as well with a lady that had done a lot of chocolatier work in Switzerland. Ooh. So I learned how to make petit fours and chocolates. And, you know, I, I just literally, it was like a crash course of learning about the finer things in life. But I always had this thing in my head. Now I've done this, I can always go back to this. I can draw on this at any time in my life, you know. And I remember even thinking maybe one day I might start a catering business or I might draw from these things. So it was kind of like, okay, I've got it. It's in my back pocket. I can go back to this when I want to. So that's that's how that kind of started. Yeah. And your sister, who is almost like a twin, I asked you earlier, she looks like you. Does she look like you? I think or she just sound like similar. you. I think she looks similar to me. It's funny because some people think that we look, you know, really alike and other people are like, no, no, you're so different. I think she looks a bit like me, maybe. So what I don't know why I'm asking this, but I just trust my intuition. So what was her path at this time? Her path. So she continued in school. She took A-levels and she continued to study. She was really academic. You know, she played the violin, um, really clever cookie. One of those students that probably didn't have to apply herself that much, but still learn everything really easily. Whereas yes. I was studying, studying, studying. <laughs> oh. You know, I was so, not yeah. academic either, by the way, when you were like saying, you know, I, I'm probably sounding like I was a stupid child or whatever you whatever you mm-hmm. said. I was like, no, I am not an academic. My sister has like three degrees. My husband has three or four degrees. Like I am just like, no, I, I, I <laughs> I'm street smart. That works for me. <laughs> yeah, my, my sister went on to do a degree in law and politics um, and then she studied journalism and she's worked for years um, in a university in London and you know she's complete academic opposites we are but yeah she she went on and carried on her path and still managed to go out a bit later on and party but again focus on her studies you know that was her path (laughs) yes so interesting So there is a you know as we call it here a GFR moment that we are you know sort of building two that I want to make sure that we have a lot of time to share about. Can you take from that GFR moment and kind of give us sort of a bit of a lead up to like what was life like, you know, at that period of time and what was going on for you? So I feel like I won't do a spoiler alert just yet, but at the time or up to the time of the of that moment, I was now um, working in financial services, so complete change of industry. I'd gone through catering. I'd worked abroad. You know, I'd worked for Thomas Cooks as it was then, um, worked overseas, came back and accidentally landed an administration job with um, what's now known as Santander, which was the Abbey National. And to cut a very long story short, gone through working for um, mortgage industry and financial services. And I had made this decision that I was going to go for career progression and ultimately had now become very senior in British financial services. Okay. So, yeah. So I, you know, I'd, I'd worked hard. I, my story, my shortened version of the story was that I was promoted rapidly in the space of two years and quadrupled my income. Wow. I would be sitting in board meetings, in sales meetings. And the board would take me seriously. These white males, I, I lovingly call them my silverbacks because they <laughs> had been, they were so, you know, they had been in financial services for longer than I've been alive. But somehow they took me seriously. They listened to me. Um, I worked. It's the really accent. <laughs> it is, but I think it, but everybody it is. had the accent. So that doesn't mean that. Well, like this a- is the thing. If I've been in a different country, you could almost understand it. But yeah, they took me seriously. And I really loved the work that I did. So I got rapidly promoted. We're now about 2008 when the financial crash happens. I get made redundant. I move um, and go to somewhere else within financial services. But this time, this is more around kind of insurance financial services, which to me is not as sexy. And I'm just, I'm kind of licking my wounds from the career progression that I'd had. 
and the success that I'd had. But I'm yeah. also, I, I guess, battling a little bit with a crisis of confidence, which meant that when I went to my next role, I thought there's no way I could do that again, surely. Maybe it was an accident and ultimately took 60% pay cut. Wow. That's what a real crisis of confidence looked like. But, you know, I, I knew I would work hard. and. Did you, are you I saying that you felt like it was a bit of a fluke that the Silverbacks you know, thought you were brilliant and you loved what you did and you were successful. Absolutely. I think, you know, imposter syndrome hits people in different ways. While I was in it, I had no imposter syndrome at all. I really didn't. But afterwards, I just thought, will I be able to do it again? Will I be able to be in an environment where I have so many allies around me? So I I thought, well, let me work hard and maybe I can kind of like do the same thing again. So I was really driven. I would work excessive hours, easily a workaholic. You know, I still had a team to start off with and and then redundancies were made in that particular role. Um, But, you know, I still I just worked really, really hard and I was starting to think maybe there's something else for me. Maybe I could start a business. Maybe I could leave. But I just wasn't really, I wasn't sure that I could pull it off, I guess. So that's kind of where I was. And a bit like what you said at the beginning of this, I was never that girl that grew up saying, when I grow up, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have the dress. I'm going to have the children. It wasn't that I didn't want those things. It just didn't it wasn't a focus of mine it didn't cross my mind it was just like well you know if when I get older I end up getting married then fine but I never had a a strict plan to do that but one of the things that I had noticed in my kind of quick rise and you know my senior management was when people said to me oh Jenny have you got any children no no I haven't (laughs) it was almost like I felt I had to adopt that whole masculine coat of no, no, I'm a serious businesswoman and, you know, right. I, I don't dilly-dally about with this rubbish and all of that. And it's really <laughs> sad because it's kind of like you lose yourself. I would loved, I would have loved to have had children, you know, um, but I felt like I had to keep that a secret. Otherwise, I wouldn't be taken as seriously. People would assume that I wasn't really fit for purpose or didn't really, you know, want the job or, you know, these things that we tell ourselves. Yes. Yeah. So by the time I got to the next place, I had been thinking, well, if I'm going to have kids, I need to really get a a shift on. But I also had fertility challenges. And you knew that already. I knew that already because I'd, I'd known from like a good decade before I was diagnosed with endometriosis. Okay. And from the moment I started sort of seeing that the doctors and things like that, everybody would say the same thing. Oh, if if you're thinking of starting a family, you should start now. But at that point, I was still single. So who was I going to start the family with? And, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. So I um, I knew because they kept telling me, oh, endometriosis, you're going to have, you know, fertility issues and fertility problems. And it's interesting because, as you'll know, in in the kind of personal development spaces, people will talk a lot about that whole drive and overdoing the masculine side of the feminine and how that can affect fertility and all of that kind of stuff. But that was completely kind of unknown to me at that point. So I just worked really, really hard, too hard, you know, stupidly hard and just thought, like everything else, if I want something, I'll push, I'll do it, I'll get it, I'll create it, you know? Yes, yes. And you were believing the story that you were going to have fertility issues. It was just like, it sounds like you were operating as it sort of being a foregone conclusion. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, yeah. So what shifted um, for you in that area? So when I got to the next place, weirdly, and I think this, I think this is weird, no one else will probably think this, I remember thinking... I really want to start my own business. So at some point, I need to make a plan to start my own business. And I'd wanted to do this for over 10 years, but nobody in my family had had their own business before, didn't really know what to do. So I kind of put it off. But at the same time as wanting to start the business, I thought, well, I might as well 
start a family at the same time. I don't even know why I thought that was a good idea. Um, I was married at the time, you know. Oh, so you did get married in the meantime here? I so did get married. Somehow in the you got your shift on and it allowed for dating. and, and <laughs> It did. It allowed for dating. And I got married to an Australian man who was over here in the UK. And um, yeah, you know, we'd bought a house and we were doing it up and, you know, renovating <laughs> it and working and, you know, thinking, well, if I'm going to have a family, you know, it'll be time. But I remember when we first met, I said, look, you know, there might be a few kind of issues and stuff, but he didn't really seem ready. So I was happy to wait. And I'm always amazed at how many women I've spoken to that they say, well, you could just get pregnant. They don't need to know. I was like, no, no, yeah, I want to do this in partnership, you know, (laughs) so he wasn't quite ready. I was happy to wait. So, you know, we kind of we waited and then then for whatever reason, I decided it'd be a great time to try and start a family and a great time to try and start a business and a great time to leave my job in the middle of a recession. Oh, okay, girl. Okay. Yeah. So can't wait so to hear what, what happens next. <laughs> so yeah, so that's what happened. And you know, eventually I handed my notice in and, and did all of that stuff. And it was really strange because a few months before that had even happened, I kept I was working on a project and it was a really important project. I kept getting these kind of funny pains and stuff and got checked out at the doctors. And I remember when I went to go and see the doctor for my my results, it was a a locum doctor, wasn't my usual doctor. And she just said to me, like, are you thinking of starting a family? And I said, yeah, yeah, one day soon. And she said, you really need to start now. Yeah, yeah, I've been told that before. And she said, seriously, it looks like you might have some fertility issues. So if you do, what I would recommend you do is to seek assisted conception or IVF. Okay. And I remember thinking, do I have to do that now? I'm really busy at work, you know, you know, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. Totally but relate to that. Yeah. Like, yeah. no, that's not part of my plan. Don't rush me. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. But thankfully she said, look, I'm going to start the process because it can take quite a while, you know, um, and over here, especially if you, if you do that on the national health service, you know, you can either have it paid for or, or you can pay for it yourself. So I thought, well, I'll start the process, see what happens. Um, you know, it's going to be probably a couple of years before anything happens. And literally within six weeks, they they said, OK, we're going to do some kind of like exams and have a look and make sure everything's OK. So I went through all of that and um, and they confirmed, yep, yeah, you, you know, due to the endometriosis, your tubes are pretty blocked to conceive naturally is going to be quite difficult. And if you want to conceive, then let's start you on this road to, you know, IVF, assisted um, conception. And it's interesting because, you know, my mum's quite religious and we were brought up, you know, to go to church and things. And even though I kind of dropped that at 16, because I I knew there was something else out there that was different and didn't align with me. I just, I remember thinking, is it wrong to have IVF? Is it, you know, is it, it's not natural, is it? Oh, should I do it? Should I not? So I had to sit with it and I knew that I wouldn't move forward with a yes or no until at least I made a decision. And in the end, I decided, yeah, you know, let's go for it. I should say we decided because, you know, spoke to the the hubster by that point who said, if you want to do it, then I'll do it, you know, let's go for it. So we made the decision and decided, yep, we'll go for the for the treatment. And when I left the job um, at financial services before, you know, just before I started my business, literally on the Friday, I left work. And I remember on the Monday having this mindset of on the Monday, I'm going to start the business, you know, but also on the Monday, I had the first doctor's appointment where they sort of talk to you about what the process is what happens and all of that kind of stuff as well so I literally did start my business at exactly the same time that we decided decided to start a family wow wow that's amazing it's funny I obviously know about IVF but I've never heard it called assisted conception and Mm. when you said that it does conception can have a religious, you know, element to it, thus, you know, immaculate conception and such. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm Jewish, so I don't know all the details, but 
so it was interesting that you said that and then you it did cause you sort of a a moment of pause like this isn't natural and so was your mother supportive in the end she was yeah I would say in the end she was I think to be honest with you she probably did what a lot of parents would do oh you need to be careful you know or is it safe and all of that kind of stuff and also I have to remember my mum's a nurse you know so she's probably seen some things and and the thing that I do know about my mum is whenever I used to ask her about anything medically she'd just say go see the doctor kind of don't (laughs) get me involved you know so I I guess she would have had some concerns um but ultimately it wasn't her that was having it it was me (laughs) so we decided you know that's what we were going to do yeah okay so what happened next so then um yeah went through found out about the process it speeded along a lot quicker um, than I expected. So by this time now, literally within weeks, we're at a clinic in London Bridge speaking to, I have to say, one of the best guys, the guy who um, ran the clinic. Um, he'd met Princess Diana. And Ooh. and also by this point, um, I knew that it, this was a mindset game. Yeah, there was a physical game going on, but I knew it was a mindset game. So I'd have all of these conversations with him and he loved it. He'd just say, I don't even need to explain this to you because you get it. But he always used to say to me, remember that the body is an orchestra and that the mind and the way you think about things is the conductor. He said, I know you'll get this. Wow. Um, So, yeah, very (laughs) progressive. He said, you know, so get the conductor conducting and everything will be fine. So with that, I went in with an ultra positive mental attitude. You know, this is going to work. Everything's going to be fine. I'm not going to be ill. You know, I'm going to enjoy the journey. In fact, I think I set myself some sort of intention. It was going to be like an everyday occurrence and still (laughs) go about my business and go through um, the treatment. So, of course, we went through the treatment and they give you the option of how many eggs would you like, blah, 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 all of that kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, okay, let's go for two. And then you have to sign like almost like a disclaimer. You know, (laughs) if we put in two eggs that they can each result in multiple, you know, births. So if you have a gazillion children, don't blame us. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, we signed it and off I went on, on the journey. There was one little setback at the beginning in that it worked, um, but I, and a lot of people didn't know this and and still probably don't know this, but at the beginning of it, I actually, I was going to say suffered with, but I hate saying that, that's an awful thing. I, I had something called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which is where basically your ovaries overstimulate. So whilst I produced lots of eggs that were all graded like triple A's, go me and my <laughs> oh, yeah. positive mental attitude what actually happens is that your ovaries start to swell and there's not really anything they can do but it's quite a dangerous condition hmm. so I ended up in hospital for the first literally um month of being pregnant in fact it was minus days of being pregnant because I had to wait another week to do the pregnancy test to confirm and and everything else but by the time I'd kind of got into that phase I was already in hospital and I was actually in hospital for nearly a month oh my gosh and you were pregnant like it it worked yes it, it worked and I knew this because when I got into the hospital when you go into A&E they do a pregnancy test and without realizing that I was going through this fertility journey I was on this like trolley and uh, the guy came back and went, oh, and by the way, you're pregnant and walked off. Oh, oh, (laughs) So it was like that. Very unceremoniously. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah, it worked. But yeah, I I wasn't supposed to know this for another kind of like few days. So, yeah. So I spent the time in hospital and this is what's hilarious. I've now started a business. I'm doing some associate (laughs) work for a company. I haven't told them I'm in hospital and, you know, I can work remotely, thankfully. So I'm answering emails. I'm on oh my, my phone and I'm, I've got my computer out and I'm working from a hospital bed for like, like I say, nearly four weeks. Wow. Yeah. So, so that all goes on. Um, I eventually get discharged and, um, and all the way through they're kind of 
the nurses were very excited. They kept wheeling me off for scans, like, let's see, you know, let's see if we can see, you know, um, how the pregnancy's going. And at that point, that's when they said, look, you know, unofficially, we can't kind of, you know, confirm this, but unofficially, it looks like there's two yolk sacs, which means that you're likely to be having twins. So I was very excited. Um, okay. And on the ward, um, the other patients, the other women, I became known as Jenny in the Pips. <laughs> I thought it was really cool. So Jenny in the Pips. And they were all like saying, how are you feeling today? I had horrendous morning sickness from like day one. Oh, me too. Oh, and it did not, mine did not fade when they say it's supposed to fade. Yeah. After the first yeah. semester or something like that. To any women out there that go through morning sickness, I, I really feel your pain. Like even somebody would suggest food and I'd be like, don't, oh. you know, anyway. So, yeah, left hospital, obviously very nervous now about, you know, this twin pregnancy and everything else like that. Um, and I had a few complications as I went through, but kept going. And because I was a little bit nervous about the pregnancy, I didn't actually tell anyone, um, you know, we didn't share that we were that we were pregnant until quite a few weeks down the line. And ironically, I didn't share that I was pregnant until I was 16 weeks pregnant. Wow. And I did it in the, the modern day way that most people did. I posted it on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine. Everyone's like, oh, my gosh. And then people were saying, oh, my gosh, is that natural? Or, you know, have you got twins in your family? And, <laughs> and it was kind of a bit hashtag awkward because you're like, you don't want to say it. Yeah. Like, yeah and, you know, but yeah, people were really, really pleased about it. And they say that a twin pregnancy, normally you carry up to about kind of 34 weeks. So I've made the announcement, you know, things are going, you know, smoothly, still lots of morning sickness. And um, and then I, I go and do a course and I, I'm at this course. And it's really weird. That day, I just felt really funny. Number one, I didn't feel sick, which was interesting. So I took the opportunity to eat as much as I could at lunchtime at the buffet. <laughs> But I, yeah, I, I drove home and I remember feeling a bit like, oh, well, soon I'm going to have to watch out for things like constipation and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I remember um, going home and feeling a bit like, well, I had a lot to eat today, but now I don't feel that hungry. And to cut a very long story short, I went to bed really late that night thinking, God, I need to get up early tomorrow to go on the next day of this course. And I start to feel really uncomfortable and I start to get a few twinges and I thought, oh gosh, you know, please don't let me be miscarrying this, please, you know, and the pain got a little bit more intense. And then I remember like trying to um, phone my doctors at like one o'clock in the morning and then waking up my ex-husband and saying, I think you're going to need to call an ambulance because I'm in a lot of pain. So an ambulance came and took me to the hospital and I got to the hospital and now I'm in lots of pain. I'm trying not to move too much. And I'm also thinking, well, if there's two, maybe, you know, one might be okay and all of that yeah. kind of stuff. And yeah, so I, I, I get to the hospital, I get rushed to the hospital and I'm just trying to keep calm. I'm trying to breathe and I'm trying to keep calm. And ultimately, knowing that I think something's going wrong with the pregnancy, what can I do to keep calm? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I think those times where, especially stuff with our body or, you know, something even happening, like when my mom's accident happened and we didn't know, like those times where you just don't know and you're trying not to think of the worst. Yeah. Um, super challenging. Yeah, it was. But um, I just remember breathing. I remember a lot of questions being asked and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see a doctor. It's the middle of the night and all of that kind of thing. And just thinking, breathe, just keep breathing. And the more I breathed, the calmer I felt, the less pain I seemed to have. I noticed if I tried to move my legs a lot, the pain would seem to come back. So I just laid very still. Anyway, I then, um, after a few hours, get taken up to a ward because I'm still in an accident emergency. I get taken to the ward and I almost feel like this is now, if you are pregnant and worried about keeping a pregnancy, I almost feel a bit like 
don't listen to this kind of thing. Okay, so trigger got, warning. <laughs> yeah, so trigger warning, a trigger alert. Um, so I go up to the ward and the pain's starting to come back and it's coming back in waves. And I'm, I'm now saying, can you give me anything for the pain? And, and they offer me paracetamol. That's all they can offer me. They, they go off and they come back and they, they bring the, the paracetamol and it's night. And I'm trying to be quiet because there are sick people in the ward, you know, all these random kind of thoughts. Anyway, the doctor wants to examine me and I'm just in so much pain. I'm like, I can't deal with this at the moment. But, you know, we have to, we have to. Off the doctor goes. And I'm sitting there and or lying on the bed, really. And um, and I just said to my my ex-husband, I just said, I'm in so much agony. I think you need to go and get the doctor back. What I didn't realise was that I was in labour. Oh, my gosh. I thought I was, quote unquote, just having a miscarriage. But and I how many act- how far along are you now? By now I'm like just under 18 weeks. OK. So only a couple of weeks after I've announced and and told everybody. So off he goes to try and find a doctor. And I'm I'm now like, I'm in so much agony. I need to keep quiet. There are people that are ill. I don't want to make a fuss. And what I now know was the ring of fire. I was like, this pain is just getting completely intense. I, I just don't know what's going on. And then, oh, that's a strange sensation. What's that? Lifted the cover. And there's a perfectly formed little baby. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the, the husband comes back. He's only been gone like, I've, I don't even know if he'd been gone like 90 seconds. And I said to him, you need to go and get the doctor. There's a baby under there. I, oh, I don't my know what God. Thought. So he comes back with the sister of the ward who's on clipping the wheels of my trolley. They're like, we need to take you to the maternity unit. So they take me over to the maternity unit. I'm met by um, a midwife who I will always be forever in his debt, Stuart, part of the lovely LGBT community. And he just said, hi, darling, what's your name? My name's Stuart. I'm your midwife. Um, And if the first baby's here, the second one's on its way. So they take me to, thankfully, a a ward and I'm on on a side room. So I'm away from the other mums who are like heavily in labour. And they talk me through I need to breathe and I need to push and I then deliver. Then it was known twin one, twin two, one girl, one boy. And I deliver the other twin. And I just remember feeling devastated. But at the same time, it's like the words fell out of my mouth. And I remember saying, um, you know, to my ex, I remember saying, this is possibly the worst thing that could ever happen to us, but something good's got to come out of this. I don't wow. know why I said that. Literally, wow. those words just That's came very out. enlightened. <laughs> it, well, it was and just. You, and were you present at the time to, like, did you, did you have clarity and were you present to, like, they were viable or not viable? Or, like, was, did you just know right away that you had, quote unquote, lost them? Or, um, yeah, well, I sensed that I'd lost them just because I was A, so early in the pregnancy yeah. and wasn't expecting that at all. But, you know, the midwives were trained by an organization over here called SANS, which is Stillbirth Neonatal Death Society. And they, they work with midwives to train them wow. how to deal with what a blessing. births and um, late miscarriages and, and things like mine. So, luckily, they knew what to say. He, he told me the second one was coming um, and then he said, I'm so sorry, but I need to tell you that they're, they're too young to survive. Aww. So I kind of knew in that moment, which is why it was really odd for me to say what I said, you know. But, yeah, I knew in that moment. I remember there was a moment where I just went, the dream's over. That's it. Wow. You know. What a blessing to have. I mean, they don't, I don't, I do not believe they have midwives particularly that are trained in anything like that in the mm. regular hospital system here. I don't believe. Mm. So what yeah. a, what a blessing and oh, what a experience. I can't even. Yeah, imagine. exactly. So, so kind of that was it. And I stayed in hospital for a few days and was looked after and then, you know, eventually kind of went back home. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, as if that isn't bad enough. And I know that people have had, had it worse there's things like I was then given drugs because the midwife explained you you've just given birth to babies and if we don't give you these particular tablets your milk will start to come yeah 
you don't think things you don't think of. And what I would say about that scenario is I saw another side of life that I didn't really consciously know even existed, didn't really think about until that moment. But yeah, so it was that that yeah. was the the, story. the other. How would, would you when you say the other side of life? Are you meaning how common losing babies? Uh, oh, my gosh. And all that. Is. Yeah. yeah. I then I kind of got thrust into this world because I was then in it, you know, hearing stories of women that go through stillbirths. There was a couple that um, I had known I'd worked with in financial services years before, and she had gone to the hospital a week before she was due. They'd gone to do the final checks and they couldn't find a heartbeat. And she was wow. given the choice, you know, do you want to stay in hospital and we induce you or do you want to wait for uh, nature to take its course? It seems silly to say it's just not something that you would even think about. You kind of see that it might happen on TV, but this happens, you know, every day. And actually, SANS, part of what they do in the UK is that they campaign to save the lives of babies. When this happened to me, this was 2010, when this happened, there were 17 um, babies dying every day in the UK. They've done so much campaigning and research that it's now, and I hope I don't misquote them, I think it's now like 14, it might even be less. So they are actually through their work and through the research, saving many people from going through this kind of thing. You know. So you, in the moment, said something would you say something good has to come of this? Something or? good has to come out of this. Okay, so what was it? Do you know what? It's really funny. When I tell this story, there's still elements of me that feel like this is someone else's story and I'm telling it for them. I still, like all these years later, think, did this really happen to me? Hmm. But a lot of a lot of good things happened. I am, um, thanks to Wayne Dyer, I refer to this as my gift in ugly wrapping. I would definitely not have chosen this for myself. I learned so much about compassion, how much strength we have as humans, what other people are capable of. I just learned a lot about it. And I certainly wasn't in denial, but I, I realised, weirdly, this is why I really resonated with the second, you know, get fucking real moment. I realised that sometimes you have to let go of things even though it feels like the most important thing in your life at yes. that moment whether you chose it or not you just have to let go you have to surrender and in a weird way the grief that you go through is horrendous but the more I try to hold on to the situation to the scenario the harder the grieving was so yes. I literally had to surrender and let go how long did it take you before you felt like you surrendered? Do you know what? I would say I felt like I surrendered. Um, I felt, honestly, I felt like I surrendered really quickly within months, even though I was still grieving. But I guess I look back and it was probably a couple of years before I was like, you know what, it is what it is. I just felt like I, I'm okay, you know. The ex was okay. He was feeling guilty about stuff. And I said, of all the emotions, guilt is the most wasted emotion. It does nothing. It's not like anger even or frustration that moves. So I would say over a couple of years, and people often say with scenarios like this, oh, well, you learn to get over it. No, you kind of learn to live with things. Right. But very quickly, just like so many series of synchronistic events kind of showed me other people were going through losses and similar things. Very quick story. Four days after I've got home, somebody calls me that I'd actually trained NLP with. And I've answered the phone and I've kind of put on the brave face. Hi, how are you doing? And <laughs> this woman is sobbing. And I'm like, oh, gosh, she's obviously heard about it. Oh, I want to make sure she's all right. She's sobbing. And, and I'm saying to her, it's okay. It, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. And after a minute or two, it still makes me laugh. She says, I just can't believe that something so terrible has happened. 19 years I was working with the company and they've made me redundant. And she's sobbing. And I was like, 
oh, that's why she's upset. <laughs> she doesn't even know what's happened with me. But in that moment, that's when I realised that a loss is a loss is a loss. Oh, For somebody, it yes. might be they broke a fingernail. Somebody else, it might be like they lost twins. Somebody else, they lost a job. They lost a partner. It doesn't really matter. It's only us as humans that try and grade this. Well, no, that's got to be a lot worse or that's got to be easier. And do you know what I mean? Yes. At the end of it all, it's still, we're all going through a level of loss and different people deal with it in different ways. And it was that so early on in the piece, somehow that unleashed this surrender moment for me. That's what I would say. Profound. So profound, that Mm. parallel loss awareness in that Mm. moment. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. So fast forwarding only because of time. I wish we had three more hours. Um, So fast forwarding to the Jenny Kovacs that is today. So it's, you know, 12 years later from Mm -hmm. that loss and you did go on to launch a business (laughs) um, on the heels of this. How, yeah. How do you feel like all of that informed like who you are now in the work that you do and in your business? So there's a couple of things I would say. The first thing that happened after that was it made me look at my very new business and really question, do I want to do this? You know, you kind of get that life's too short moment. Yes. Do I really want to do this? No. Does this make me happy? No. Um, So I made some very quick decisions as to kind of what I wanted to do in my business. Um, And that's the first thing I would say. The next way I guess that it informed, I guess, what I do now is, and it was thanks to a client that said this to me many years ago, given that I help people to stand out, I didn't go and specialise in this piece. I remember this client was going through a really hard private time and I would be coaching, mentoring, doing whatever I could to guide and support her. And at the end of it, she said to me, so many coaches that I've worked with walked me to the riverbank, let go of my hand, told me to walk through and that they would meet me at the other side. She said, you walked with me through the valley of the shadow of death. And she said, it was like I could feel you weren't afraid. Wow. That right there is just one of the gifts in ugly wrapping. I'm not afraid. I'm really not afraid to have conversations where other people would be a bit like, oh, maybe this or I don't know. I'm not afraid of any conversation. Obviously, I'm respectful. Um, it, It came bearing gifts. And then the other thing, which sounds silly to say, but obviously makes sense, is in a lot of the kind of spiritual realms that I that I inhabit, people would often talk about giving birth to a business, birth in a business. And to be honest, at first, it used to really piss me off. <laughs> so I'd be like, well, what if you have a stillbirth for a business, you know? So yeah. I, I was trying to like untangle all of like, how do I feel about this? But knowing that one thing isn't good or bad, right or wrong, that it's just different. It's just different experiences, different pathways. And for some people, it's supposed to be one way and another, you know, another way. I am not that story that says, but a few years later, I fell pregnant and I went on and had children. I, you know, I never had children and me and the ex ended up splitting up and that was cool, but it was just the way the journeys went. So it's some of those things were the insights that came out of this whole experience. But I I think it made me, in some instances, just feel no fear about stuff. Amazing. Mm. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I think that is really the whole purpose of this show is to show how all the gifts in Ugly Rapping serve us and are Mm -hmm. almost essential for us to be the person that we are, to hold space for others, to help them walk through the river, Mm. to help others be seen and not just learn to conform to be normal. I mean, your job now is to help them be seen. So I've just loved going on this journey with you and hearing all of the things that contributed to the woman that is sitting with me. It touches me deeply. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to share because 
I have to say the gift of your show is allowing people to speak what sometimes feels like it should be the unspeakable. And being able to hold that and do that is such a gift, such a gift. So thank you. And, you know, just for the just for the record and the recording, I've always said, you know, thank you so much for really embracing, um, you know, women of colour and people of colour on your show. I really think that you've always done that. So if anyone thinks that you're doing this as some sort of tick box exercise, then I, I think they can let that go. So, yeah, thank you for doing it, because it's not always the easiest path to tread, the easiest thing to say, but you do it anyway. So kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. It means so much to me. So, so much to me. Do you know when we met? I was trying to remember. I mean, I'm, now that I know that this happened to you in 2010, I know it was within a couple of years of that that we met. Yeah. I think it would have been around 2013, 14. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, I had the pleasure of having Jenny as a a client, as part of a bigger program with my partner at the time, Lisa Sasevich, who's also a past GFR show guest. And you always stood out to me as a bright light. I mean, we'd be on these calls with, you know, a hundred people and, you always raised your hand and you always got the support you need. And you always were, you know, just so like welcoming of whatever transformation was there for you next. And I'm just, I'm so really happy to come together to this new dynamic of connection. And we've been connecting thanks to social media, you know, on and off over the years. So mm-hmm. I'm just really, really happy that we got to do this together. Yeah, thank you. I'm happy I got to do it with you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. So that is Miss Jenny Kovacs, the queen of being seen. (laughs) And I just love I loved hearing her story, her being promoted three times in two years and the silverbacks that helped her out and delightful to hear of a scenario where a black woman is so supported and has so many allies to be successful in her career. She is giving my listeners her Make Me Visible manual. And you can grab that at the link in the show notes. And she does a training for our GFR squad on her five pillars in her visibility activator system. It's a really robust little training that she does. If you're not a member of our GFR squad, go ahead and do that. And we get to hang out once a month where we focus on one of the GFR commandments. The community is really evolving into a very powerful and healing place to be. And there's no pressure to confess. You can just come and hang out and be in the vibe. And if you haven't gotten your GFR commandments, well, that is a no-brainer. That is sort of a primer for the show. Uh, Jenny's favorite commandment was number two, let go of what doesn't feel good. And she talks about this profound story of when she let go Um, of those twins, which, oh my God, so powerful. So make sure you grab your GFR commandments also link in the show notes and subscribe to the show. So you don't miss any of these amazing stories. I hope and pray that they keep you motivated along your journey as you go through the struggles that serve your purpose over and out for now.